Hey, y'all. It's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Timmy Dermias. Today, two writers who confront untold family stories by exploring the past. In a minute, we'll hear about Aaron Hamburger's novel, Hotel Cuba, which takes place amid the mass migration of European immigrants to the U.S. But first, the book Fatherland by Burkhard Bilger. It's a personal look at Bilger's grandfather and his role as a member of the Nazi party in Germany. In this interview with Weekend Edition host Scott Simon, Bilger discusses what led him down the decade-long journey to tell the story and why it wouldn't let him go until he did. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Burkhard Bilger grew up in a family of German immigrants in Oklahoma in the 1960s and says his mother spoke of Nazism in World War II. She might tell a sinister fairy tale in rough woodcut images, black and white, gouged with red. The admired New Yorker writer has turned his repertorial skills on his own family and the role of his grandfather, Karl Gunner, who was sent from Germany to oversee a school in a village in Alsace in Nazi-occupied France in 1940. He risked his own life to save lives or gave orders that cost lives, depending on who you ask, or was it both? Burkhard Bilger's powerful new memoir is Fatherland, and he joins us from Brooklyn. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's great to be here. I have to begin by asking, why not just let your family history rest, whatever it is? You know, I think it's just a, a story that itched at me. It had been so hidden for so long in, in my family's life. My mother had written her PhD on on uh, Vichy France and, and done her research, but had never really looked into her father's own story. And then there was this moment in, in 1983 when she had actually gone back to the village where he had been the principal of the school as well as the Nazi party chief and was about to leave when she saw an old man walking by. So she ran over to him and kind of blurted out, um, excuse me, you know, my father was was stationed here during the war. His name was Kyle Gunnell. Would you happen to have known him? And this old man was dumbstruck and looked at her and said, oh, of course I knew him. I saved his life. Mm. And it turned out that he had been the head of the resistance in that village. And when the French liberated the village in 1944, they were about to shoot my grandfather and he had interceded and said, no, that not this man. He had actually done, he's done some things with me to help the village. So suddenly the story that we had kind of kept hidden in the family for, for decades was much more complicated. Like, who was this man? Was he, was he a Nazi? Was he not a Nazi? Did he do good? Did he do bad? And as a grandson, as well as a journalist, I just couldn't leave that story alone. Yeah. Tell us about the uh, the packet of letters your mother received a few years ago. My aunt had been cleaning out my grandfather's old belongings in the attic of their house in Germany and had found in his desk a series of old letters, you know, written handwritten, kind of in this very kind of country scrawl. And she sent them to my mom because, you know, my mom had done this historical research. And it turned out they were all testimonials written by the villagers in France where he had been the Nazi party chief. And they were done at great risk because they were written in 1946, 1947, when France was going to the the purification phase where 300,000 French people were tried for collaboration and a lot of people were summarily executed. It was an extremely dangerous 
place in France and time in France to have any kind of hint of Nazi sympathies. I mean, about about nine thousand people were just were just hung or or executed, shot. Yeah, a very scary and you know horrible time. And in the midst of that period, these seventeen villagers had written testimonials to the French military government saying, "This former Nazi that you have under arrest." actually did good things for us in the village during the war. You know, he kept our sons hidden when they were trying to draft them to sent to, to be sent to Russia. They got us out of the camps if we got sent there for saying something anti-German when we were drunk at night. You know, that, these are all these very, to me, poignant stories from the war that he told. And yet at the same time, he was um, he was officially held responsible for somebody's death, wasn't he? That's the thing with him is that, you know, it's such a double-sided story for me. I mean, he did he did join the Nazi party in 1933. He went to the rallies in Nuremberg. He heard exactly how, how deadly serious and prejudiced um, Hitler was. And he continued to be a loyal party member up until 1944. I mean, he, he led the Hitler youth and was somebody who was very intent on as he said, you know, forwarding the principles of national socialism. There was a lot about him that was kind of rigidly adhered to the party line. And yet when push came to shove and people's lives were at stake, that's when he kind of showed a certain kind of courage. Yeah. My wife is French. My my late mother-in-law spent the first five years of her life living in a cellar because Nazi staff officers occupied their home in Normandy. Mm. And... When I was just getting to know her, I asked her what that was like, and she said, oh, the officers were so nice. They played with us. They snuck us little treats, we kids. Right, right. Oh, you know, and we're just not used to hearing that. And yeah, and, and yeah. yet it was a tough time, and they were very glad when the Canadians came in. Yeah, that was, you know, for me, that was one of the impulses for writing this book was this, I feel like you know, we have such a black and white view of that history and those people. Um, and in some ways, I feel like it makes us not confront the same issues in ourselves. If we think, oh, those Germans did a bad thing, the, the World War II and Nazism is all about something terrible that the Germans did. Um, and we forget that, of course, we all have that capacity that after Nazism, we had mass murders in China and Russia and Cambodia and Rwanda and Bosnia and Turkey. And, you know, we've just had a drumbeat of these kind of horrific behaviors. And, and it just becomes And, and our clear. own racial history in this country. And we have our own racial history. I mean, one of the things I do in the book is kind of show how there were parallel things happening in the United States. Of course, not at the same degree at all, not to make an equivalency, but you know, we had our own racial history going on and, and, and eugenics originated in the United States and sterilization campaigns happened in the United States. So I think if we don't kind of look at that history and then think, wow, humans have this capacity, we have this capacity, how, how are we in some ways similar to what this history shows us, then we miss the lessons of it. Yeah. Burkhard Bilger's memoir, Fatherland. Thank you so much for being with us. No, it's been great to be here. Thank you. This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea with skincare sets for Mother's Day in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. 
Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Aaron Hamburger's latest novel, Hotel Cuba, was inspired by a photograph of his grandmother. I'll let him tell the story in a second, but needless to say, it set him down a path that takes us from the cold shtetls of Eastern Europe to the vibrant streets of Havana, Cuba. His novel is based on the rough arc of his grandmother, who, like many immigrants from Eastern Europe, was redirected to Cuba as she tried to make her way to the U.S. Along the way, his protagonist Pearl encounters what you would expect at the time, anti-Semitism, sexism, xenophobia. But the book also showcases the kindness of strangers and how to survive when the world is in a especially hostile place. Aaron Hamburger talked about the book with NPR Sasha Pfeiffer. Immigration stories are inspiration for countless novels. The author Aaron Hamburger thought his grandmother's immigration journey was worthy of a book, too, especially when he found an old photo of her that didn't quite fit with the woman he knew. She was very loving. She was kind of the idea of, of what you would imagine a Yiddish bubby to be. She would sing me <laughs> lullabies. She would make uh, these quote-unquote rock cookies that were warm and soft out of the oven and an hour later were hard as rocks. Um, she was uh, really kind of a wonderful presence. But I didn't really know her as a person uh, that well aside from you know the way a, a little boy would know his grandmother. And that's why I was so um, surprised to find this image of her from 1922, which is in the book, of her dressed in full male drag. That picture and the tale behind it are the impetus for his latest novel, Hotel Cuba. It's about a young woman named Pearl, who in the 1920s leaves Eastern Europe's poverty and anti-Semitism for the United States. But she's diverted to Cuba, and that changes how she views the world. I asked Aaron Hamburger why both women, his grandmother and the character based on her, ended up in the Caribbean on their way to the U.S. There was a kind of hysteria going on in the United States and in many other places, a fear that what happened in Russia with the communist revolution would happen in other places. And so there were these new laws enacted first in 1921 and then in 1924, which actually became the basis for immigration laws uh, you know, going forward for many years, that limited uh, immigration from Eastern Europe. And the vast majority of immigrants were coming from Eastern Europe or Jewish. And so uh, there was a loophole in this law, which said that you couldn't come to America from Eastern Europe. But if you could get to Cuba or Argentina or Mexico, you could establish residency there for a year. And then you weren't coming in from Eastern Europe. You were coming in from whatever that country was. And the steamboat companies that were missing out on a lot of this income that they'd been making from ferrying immigrants over the United States were actively promoting this as an alternate destination. They're saying, hey, just go to Cuba for a year and then you can get into the United States. So my grandmother decided to go with her sister to, to Cuba, a place she had never been. She had no idea what it was like. Um, and I love how she summed up the decision to go in her, the recorded interviews, three little words. So I went. <laughs> just like that. And, and, and so she went. There's a point in the novel where someone makes an observation and they say, when Americans come here to live, meaning Cuba, it's mm -hmm. generally because they've failed at something back home. Hmm. That was really interesting. Tell me more about 
that? And, and was it just that anyone who leaves their native country is leaving something they've failed at? Or is it specific to people who leave the U.S.? I've actually been an expatriate a few times in my life, and it's interesting. Sometimes you do meet those people who they thrive in other places, and for some reason they sort of don't fit in at home, and they end up becoming expatriates and, and living in other countries. And so uh, that was my thought behind that that remark. And um, just thinking about the varied cast of characters that the main character, Pearl, in the story based on my grandmother, comes into contact with. You can see a number of people who – find um, Havana to be this kind of liminal space where more things are possible than they would be in the more sort of straight-laced American society that they came from. I want to go back to that photo you mentioned of your grandmother wearing pants in the early 1900s, so Mm -hmm. surprising. There are several times in your novel that you mention clothing. There's Mm -hmm. a line where you say, before the Great War, when people cared about what they look like. And then there's a, a line where they talk about clothes, teaching the world to treat people with dignity. And, she, and your grandmother felt transformed by wearing those pants. Why that, that clothing theme? I relate to my grandmother as a creative artist, as somebody who expressed herself through design. And I just loved imagining how she might look at different materials and try to design them and put together and what her design aesthetic might be in the same way that I, as a writer, think very carefully about the kind of language that I use, the kind of sentences that I create, uh, the kind of characterization and setting that I, that I try to create with my words. And so a lot of my grandmother's thoughts about um, creation are, are mine in some sense. Um, thinking about the act of creativity and creating with intentionality. I don't want to give too much away, but in your novel and in real life, your grandmother eventually did get to the United States. Mm-hmm. And as as with many immigrants, it was not the paradise she may have hoped for. Her life was rough, at least at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Did they also find it difficult in a way they didn't expect? So my grandmother says that when she finally arrived to New York to be reunited with her sisters, she said, when I saw how my sisters were living in New York, I wanted to go back to Russia. I mean, she, she was definitely shocked by the, the poverty that they lived in. And as I did research into other immigrant narratives, that was a common theme. You know, America had been built up as the golden land, literally, the golden and Medina. And there was all this mythology about how wonderful and how great it was. It would be hard, I think, for almost any country to sort of live up to that mythology. Uh, but then when you sort of look into what it was like to live in the Lower East Side or in these immigrant enclaves in New York, I mean, they were they were packing them in and uh, living in, in really tough conditions and working in sweatshops, long hours, difficult jobs. Um, and, you know, in some sense, that hasn't changed today in a lot of immigrant communities. Uh, and that was one of the things that really motivated me to tell the story were how many links I found between the stories of immigrants in the past and immigrants of today. Yeah. You know, on that note, I didn't consider this a political book. But mm. at the end of the novel, you wrote that in poring over primary and secondary sources, and your words are, I encountered quite a bit of harsh language, often mm-hmm. eerily reminiscent of the most bitter rhetoric of our contemporary politics. Yes. Did you come away thinking that the political, societal problems and divisions we have now are are the same as then, different than then, better, worse? Well, it's fascinating because I went to the National Archives and I handled you know actual documents of the uh, people who were in charge of immigration at the time. And also read letters from everyday people who were writing in to say, uh, I'm reporting on this problem of 
undocumented immigration, although they didn't call it that at the time, to protect the purity of our blood pool. Um, and you would just also in these letters, these they were so beautifully worded in this kind of flowery, old-fashioned language. And then in the middle of it, they would drop the most vile racist terms that you've ever heard in your life. So perhaps the style and the, the flair with which this rhetoric is deployed has, has changed. It's probably coarser now. Uh, but the vitriol of it, I don't think, has changed. Your novel is set more than a century ago. Mm-hmm. What do you think it has to teach us about today? I think the profound kindness uh, kindnesses shown to strangers. Um, it's amazing how often my grandmother was helped by people that she never saw again. Um, but they really went out of their way to to ease her path, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in larger ways. And if we can all perform more of those kindnesses to each other, what a better world we'll have. That's Aaron Hamburger. He's the author of the novel Hotel Cuba. Aaron, thank you very much. Your book is great. Oh, thank you so much. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Timbidermias. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Kat Lonsdorf, Lee Hale, Michael Levitt, Justine Kennan, Elena Burnett, Courtney Dorning, Noah Caldwell, Michael Radcliffe, Matthew Sherman, Kai McNamee, and myself. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks so much for listening. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day.